Just because something bears the aspect of the inevitable, one should not, therefore, go along willingly with it. Philip K. Dick Hello and welcome to The Mirror. I'm Justin Reed and welcome back for another episode. I... I hope, uh, I'm not going to say that. I was going to say, I hope you're all well, but sometimes I feel like that phrase, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, is like a way, I don't know, it can it can really come off as like disingenuous <laughs> um, because it's often used in a transactional setting between, you know, like a client and a, and a, and a contractor um, who have a professional relationship, but not really a personal one. So to say, hope you're well is like an easy way of, you know, kind of being pleasant and, and not um, not just strictly getting down to business, but without really giving the room for um, actually finding out how someone is. Like it would be almost inappropriate in those contexts for, you know, if I ask a client, how are you? And they say to me, actually, everything is like really awful. I'm going through a divorce or something like that. And I don't know them from a bar of soap. Like I just make videos for them. Um, that would be incredibly uncomfortable. So that's like a utilitarian way of like getting through the pleasantries without, you know, having an uncomfortable uh, conversation. But, um, you know, potentially, but uh, I've noticed more and more that this has started to seep into everyday life and like personal relationships as well. So like with, with, uh, you know, friends, they, they basically say, hope, hope you're well. And I've realized that, that I would say it myself. And I, and I realized that I don't really like the, the, the way that that kind of like removes the ability to have a conversation with people. And I've talked about this before, but the way that like our relationships are changed through, through like on the online, um, the online sphere and like the way that we see ourselves and see people, the way it turns us into like purely, um, marketized beings and like have purely transactional relationships. I think it's like little things like that, that if you become aware of it, you can kind of pull yourself up on. And I think on some level, like I knew and that like other people do know as well, but they don't sort of realize that we get into this habit of if you haven't heard from someone for a while and you know, it can be, I don't know why, but it can be like awkward or uncomfortable to catch up with someone because of that, because yeah, maybe you don't actually have the time or maybe they are your friend, but you just want something from them. But it, by saying, hope you're well, instead of how are you? Like, it, I know, I know I'm being incredibly semantic here at the beginning of this episode, but, um, all of this is to say, uh, how are you out there? How are you going? I know that you can't exactly respond to me, uh, directly in this instance, but I guess I haven't really spoken about it too much, but I, through the through the links in the show notes of my episodes, I have my website and um, I have a contact form on the website that you can get in touch. And, you know, if you know me personally, there are other ways you can contact me. But if you wanted to speak about any of these things that, that we go over, any of the topics, or if you wanted to, um, I don't know, just more generally talk about art or like share what you're working on or um, share ideas. I mean, I, I don't want to outright say like, if you want advice, because, you know, I'm just, I'm just figuring it out as well. We're all going to figure it out together. 
but that's there on offer for you as well. And I just wanted to make sure that it's, it's known um, that that's an option and people can reach out to me. Um, I, I've done, I've designed this project and my sort of new online persona as it were quite intentionally to limit the contact points that people have with me. Like I don't, um, I don't sort of have a, a social media page as it were. Like I, I don't have comments on the YouTube videos because I don't necessarily want to be inundated or, um, you know, I, basically what I want is I want there to be a level of friction between people being able to speak to me about these things because then that means that if they really want to speak to me or they really want to talk about these things that they have a level of thoughtfulness that they've gone through. They've probably considered what they're doing, you know, to, to go to the point of writing an email to someone, it's a little bit more of an effort, but it's also more intentional than just firing off a, an Instagram or a YouTube comment, which, you know, often we do in reaction. And it's, it's not to say like that I don't welcome uh, criticism or I don't welcome the idea of someone sharing their thoughts of, uh, or reactions to these things, but rather I'm doing my best in my life to be more intentional about these things. And I'm doing my best to try and speak to people in person, if not in person, with a phone call, if not with a phone call, then as a last resort, a text message, as opposed to purely just, you know, back and forth, random in, in internet chat every now and then, because I, I, I don't, I don't like it. And I've spoken about how I feel, you know, social media is corrosive. Uh, and it's not a, it's not a novel or a new take. It's, it's not something that I'm coming up with for the first time, but it's something that I'm articulating as I'm working through my experiences of it. And I think that that's something, uh, I, I, I think other people, especially if you've, you know, listened this far into this project, I think it's, it must be something that you're interested in as well, or at least on some level, consciously or subconsciously, you're thinking about these things as well. These, these things are affecting you in some way. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 I want to know how people are going, but I don't want to have an endless online conversation because I'm trying to be as online, uh, I'm trying to be online as little as possible. And like, I, and I also want this work to kind of stand on its own. Like it's not the most labor intensive artwork and it's not the most conceptual thing to create a podcast, but I still want it to be, uh, and, and that's what I like about podcasts, uh, is that it's a, it's a personal experience for people that they get to experience at their own, in their own way, at their own pace and their own time when they want to, as opposed to, you know, purely, um, as opposed to something like an Instagram feed, as opposed to something like, uh, a Facebook, like I, I realize that I promote and market this through those platforms, but that is the pure intention of it. Like I'm no longer interested in wrapping up personal feelings or, or like, uh, you know, on the flip side of it, I don't also just want people to always just easily comment like, Hey, this is good or nice when I, I don't really know if they've watched it or engaged with it. So it, it means that engagement with the project will be less, but the engagement that I receive will be more intentional because I will know that people are engaging with it and I will know what they're thinking about it if they care enough to go out of their way to contact me. 
So yeah, that, that link is in the show notes. You can, um, click through to the website and leave a message there. I, I will get back to you when I can. Sometimes it might take a few days or it might take a bit longer, even if I'm sort of thinking of it. But, um, yeah, I, I welcome it and I, I, I do hope you are well. That is something I, I do honestly feel because if you've stuck with the project up until this point, which can we just sort of take a little moment to celebrate episode nine, uh, which is a, a, a small landmark achievement because in my last project, I, I finished four episodes, uh, sorry, eight episodes and it felt like a grind. It felt like it was really challenging and that I guess, like I said, because I didn't really have a direction for it, getting to those eight episodes actually took four months. I was doing it fortnightly, which, you know, makes sense. Uh, but I, I just, I feel like it's, it's an exciting thing and I am happy to reflect back on this like point that I've, you know, overcome the level of, of, uh, the, the amount of work that I did in the last project, but not only that, but I've done it within two months, you know, I've done this weekly episode schedule, even if they're not recorded weekly, but I've been able to record them a lot quicker because my thoughts are a lot more clear because the things I'm thinking about and journaling and writing about, um, and I guess researching about on some level as well, uh, things that I'm really feeling and really resonating with. And, and, and that first opening conversation we've just gone through about the, you know, the, the hope you're well conundrum, <laughs> uh, that, that really ties into what I wanted to talk about today. And I mentioned this a few episodes ago, but I wanted to do something a little bit different today where, where I uh, read from an article, uh, like a, it's like a journal essay that I found online that I think really uh, precisely pinpoints with some, honestly, a bit of academic language, but like with historical context, the moment I feel like we are in as it pertains to entertainment, to cultural products, to our own sense of like what it means to create, but even more uh, destructively what it means to consume. And yeah, I mentioned it on, I think it was episode episode six, but I'm going to read this article now and it'll probably be about 15 to 20 minutes. Like, and and keep in mind, this is a two part article. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to read part one on this episode and then kind of work through it a little bit or add some, some thoughts to it. Uh, and then in the next episode or maybe a future episode, I'll do part two, which is a, a really good extension of it. But, um, it's called dosing culture part one. And it's by the the writer, Chris Crawford, who's a, a writer living in New York. And he, he wrote this for Damage Magazine, damagemag.com online. And they're kind of like a, they definitely speak in uh, about like political things, but from a psychoanalytical um, approach. And they have some really like poignant and in-depth uh, essays about about things like our culture and about the, you know, the moment that we're living in. And I think that I read this maybe like it came out in September. So I probably read it around uh, September, 2020. I probably read it in October of that year. And it just really stuck with me, even if it was a bit too much to sort of all take in at once, but the concepts it was talking about 
and just like it, it just put words to the feelings that I had and I think the best way to sort of experience this I mean I have a link in the show notes of this episode you can read it yourself I would urge you to even after listening to listening to this but I think like by reading it as it is I think that's probably the best way to engage with it even if it is you know a little bit um a little bit lengthy but uh yeah again I just feel like taking it as it is is the best way to go rather than me just sort of picking bits out of it I think reading it at length so yeah without without rambling too much further I will uh, read it and keep in mind this essay is an excerpt from a longer version that was published in I think it's a journal called Cured Quail volume two and I said this this is part one and there is a part two as well there may be extra to it I I'm not sure I have not subscribed to that journal so I haven't read it but this is quite comprehensive I think in terms of like the worldview and the ideas that I've been speaking about when it pertains to yeah the the culture that we live in and the way that um, cultural production is approached and how that affects us as psychoanalytically importantly like uh, psychologically I mean okay so here we go dosing culture part one by Chris Crawford. We begin with a quote by Adorno and Horkheimer from the Dialectic of Enlightenment. It reads, The overdevelopment of the division of labor in society lives on the immaturity of the ruled. The more complex and sensitive the social, economic, and scientific mechanism to the operation of which the system of production has long since attuned to the body, the more impoverished are the experiences of which the body is capable. The elimination of qualities, their conversion into functions, is transferred by rationalized modes of work to the human capacity for experience, which tends to revert to that of amphibians. The regression of the masses today lies in their inability to hear with their own ears what has not already been heard, to touch with their hands what has not previously been grasped. It is the new form of blindness which supersedes that of vanquished myth. Sublimation, diversion, and dissociation. In Civilization and Its Discontents, Freud discusses various defenses, or techniques of life, which human beings have developed to contravene our unhappiness. For Freud, discontent is inevitable. Civilization requires the repression of our congenital tendency toward unbridled pleasure-seeking, and pleasure is our only source of happiness. Culture is considered from two basic perspectives in his discussion. The first is as a diversion. Culture provides momentary sensual pleasure, a release from the pressures of reality. Freud compares culture as diversion to the use of chemical substances found in one form or another in every society, which regulate emotional economies, promote cohesion, and suppress dissent. Freud subsumes the second perspective on culture, together with art, science, and philosophy, under the heading of sublimation. Sublimation is another form of diversion, but a deeper and more lasting one, It is a displacement of the drives as opposed to a mere distraction or pseudo-satisfaction into higher yet less intense forms of pleasure. It is as if through sublimation, a substance normally toxic in its pure form is able to combine with something from the outside world. In the process, it becomes a safer compound. Neither diversion nor sublimation solve our fundamentally problematic existence as pleasure fiends in the wrong world, but the latter at least contributes to a strengthening of the self over time. 
It is to Freud's credit that he refuses to restrict culture to sublimation alone, making sure not to neglect the lower forms that are equally important in our psychic and social economy. This is important for any contemporary study of culture because today sublimation as a cultural outlet is increasingly supplanted by diversion, which infects even those areas previously believed to be bastions of serious pursuits. What we often get from culture now can only be called an experience by stretching the meaning of the term. It is too impoverished even for that abstract criteria. It is more like an endless series of doses. We can recognize this in the transformation of the world itself. Culture is just as likely to signify YouTube videos, live streams, podcasts, tweets, serialized TV, Twitch streams, pop songs, shareable content on platforms like Instagram or TikTok, and corporate narrative franchises as the history of literature, religion and ritual, or visual art. We often speak now simply of media, an elision that seems to hit upon something objective. The relationship of objects of culture to cultivation has been liquidated, replaced by marketing, algorithmic standardization, commodification, and pseudo-personalization. It is now a cycle of content production and mindless consumption. Cultural objects within capitalism have always been commodities, and as such they are underpinned by economic imperatives and forms of technology that, by serving these imperatives, shape arts inequalities and modes of reception. As commodities that are meant to capture our minds, they also have the power, compounded over time, to structure our desires and determine the limits of our experience, our modes of thought, and our capacities for reflection. Put simply, they begin to change what it means to be a subject just as religion, which it has replaced, once did. Culture now comes at us in an endless stream. Our task is not interpretation, but simply to prepare ourselves to consume more without digesting anything. To aid this effortless internalization, content becomes smooth, rigid, and textureless, and it just keeps coming. The process of consumption, ceaseless as it is, must be made so habitual and frictionless that nothing can possibly stick. Culture no longer cultivates. It is not meant to. The objects foisted upon us no longer allow for that kind of engagement. Dosing culture is merely the latest iteration of the culture industry, which long ago supplanted sublimation culture as the latter's social, institutional, and intellectual foundations eroded. In the American case, so-called elite culture has always been restricted to a small minority. In many aspects, dosing culture is simply an intensification of the tendencies of standardization, pseudo-personalization, and psychological regimentation that have been hallmarks of mass culture since its beginning. Because labor power and capitalism is a commodity, our mental, emotional, and bodily lives are commodified through work. In a basic sense, while we are at work, we are no longer in possession of ourselves. Around the mid-century, theorists like C. Wright Mills and Harry Braverman highlighted the specific psychological effects of this regimentation, which never applied strictly to bodies, but also to our minds, our psychologies, our inner behavior, our self-concepts. The Frankfurt School brought to these topics the recommendation that the logic of subsumption is not restricted to our time at work. The culture industry was thus theorized as the sphere of extensions of commercial imperatives into free time. Has digital culture altered this logic in any way, or has it simply intensified it? Dosing culture is clearly a continuation of the ideological functions of mass culture. Reification and psychological integration remain primary. To instill the feeling the world cannot possibly be other than it is, but it is possible that dosing culture achieves this aim in new ways, which might be significant for any contemporary theory of subjectivity.
How should we outline this development? If traditional bourgeois culture, at least in theory, was built for sublimation and early forms of analog mass culture replaced sublimation with diversion, dosing culture can perhaps be said to have gone a step further and developed a total cultural system of dissociation, or, as it has been put elsewhere, the history of the culture industry, believed by the theorists of the Frankfurt School to have been powerful enough to fundamentally change subjectivity in modern society, is the history of the transformation of neurotic subjects into properly psychotic ones. Rather than drives and emotions pressing force from the inside, drives and emotions are cut off from oneself and participate in the construction of a claustrophobic and paranoid reality surrounding us, so that emotional life and reality become so fused as to become indistinguishable. Dosing culture is a system built to elicit psychotic-like mental functioning, tendentially cutting us off from reality and liquidating our capacities for thought. What dosing culture manages as a total cultural system is to replace older forms of aesthetic engagement, even the relatively superficial ones of analog mass culture, with a total psychotic system, a constant flow of undigested objects and inescapable claustrophobic loop of integration. The symptoms are numerous. The sense of timelessness and lack of development, the transition from boredom to manic activity, or in some cases their combination in a single activity, the suffusion of consciousness with a sense of sterility and stasis despite the constant flow of new content, the constant sense of distraction or pseudo-engagement. All these qualities articulate the general sense of a culture that is cut off from our inner depths even as it manages to dominate consciousness, insinuating itself into daily behavior, prevalent attitudes and mental functioning during our free time and at work. This change has a number of social, political and psychological ramifications. In psychological terms, contemporary culture, even more so than older forms of mass culture, requires the subsumption of our experiential awareness and mental functioning to industrial technology, leading to manifestly negative psychological outcomes. The rise of TV and radio in the 20th century certainly led to widespread conventionalism, but digital culture literally makes people ill, anxious, depressed, paranoid. Almost all of its qualities follow from its tendency to liquidate our capacity for complex thought, to replace reality contact with projection, paranoia, and mania. I will describe dosing culture's psychotic tendencies in greater detail below but for now it is worth briefly mentioning two of its most important political ramifications. In psychotic life, nothing develops. The sense of time atrophies. Digital culture spoils both our capacity for historical experience as well as our ability to feel in art the sense that another world is possible. Authentic art throughout history has served as a container for the collective longing for a world not based in domination. This element disappears in dosing culture. The culture industry was always positivist, made up of forms, contents, and images that largely refused to go beyond the status quo. Dosing culture works by further severing the link between aesthetic experience and non-standard experience. This is achieved in formal terms, through the destruction of relationships which previously made meaning and development possible. The relationships inside an artwork itself, the reciprocal relationship between the work's development and the subject's development, which extends to the relationship between aesthetic competence and psychological maturity. And finally, perhaps most importantly, the relationship between the work and historical meaning. Dosing culture simply does not allow for any meaningful sense of time. Its dissociative tendencies promote historical amnesia to an extreme degree. 
Our minds tend to shut off as we consume it to the point where what has happened even the day before disappears from awareness. This process of formal flattening is made possible by extreme forms of technical regimentation. Not only does dosing consist mostly of impoverished contents ripped from everyday life, but in formal terms, it is a product of severing the tie between form and content, technique and inner development. Form is replaced by the proprietary technology of the platform, software that controls into the minutest detail how you produce, share and experience work, and algorithms that constantly filter what you're able to see. Spontaneity is replaced by platform and algorithm-based management, idiotic imitative behavior, and extreme forms of conventionalism. In short, subjects and their mental life become appendages to the technology. This gets us to the core of dosing cultural economic innovation. Dosing culture takes the traditional logic of commodified culture and adds another layer of commercial exploitation. The traditional critique of the culture industry focused on the way production from above engendered a false sense of freedom or consumer choice that disguised the way it shaped down to the smallest detail through processes of standardization and marketing, our capacities for experience, our fantasy worlds and psychological attitudes. The culture industry constantly hijacked our desires, our sense of identity, our emotional and fantasy worlds for the sake of profit. Contemporary dosing culture does that and more. It not only markets cultural commodities to consumers, but in the very same process constitutes the consumers as a further commodity to sell back to companies. In its modes of reception, mediated by software, algorithms, and massive data systems, it transforms the customers themselves into a commodity, a consumer identity matrix that can be sold to firms for targeted ads. This absolutely mundane function is, in the final analysis, the new godhead of our culture. The contemporary culture industry as it plays out in dosing culture thus becomes a sort of Mobius strip of commodification, a total system of exploitation on every side. Finally, culture's conventionalizing tendencies do not exhaust its ideological role. The power of the system grows in different proportion to our powerlessness in all other areas over the course of our lives and society at large. People perpetually at the mercy of structures beyond their control retreat into culture and its illusions of agency. Over time, it becomes a mental prosthetic, a pacifier we constantly utilize to soothe our depression, to provide some continuity amidst our fragmentation, or just to make life tolerable at all. From cultivation to infantilism. In order to more fully understand where we are today, let us begin with a comparison. The genre of the Bildungsroman implies an idea of youth wherein early encounters with certain works of art are so powerful that they contribute to one's identity and shape the trajectory of one's life. This might seem like an old romantic idea, but it is hard to argue against the notion that choosing to read Proust or Joyce intensively at a certain age or become deeply familiar with some particular style from art history or going through the canon of modern music these experiences, which probably occupy many of us for years, actually make us different people. Or if that is too strong, perhaps we might put it passively. After you encounter them, you are no longer the same. This notion of aesthetic experience is powerful because it initiates a journey that requires effort and transformation. Reading great literature not only adds something to the self, it also produces the possibility of going beyond oneself of making one's way through the object to a position of autonomy and distance reflection, not only from the work in question, but also one's own assumptions and dominant attitudes. What makes, say, an early attachment to Nietzsche 
different from an addiction to the empty yet interminable thought husks that populate Twitter, the platform of thought and its appearance, is that his thinking contains the injunction to go beyond it, to think for oneself, to eventually put his influence in its proper place. This is an idea of culture that contains the notion of development, personal change, maturity and cultivation. It emerged from the Enlightenment tradition and contains its base of directive as outlined by Kant. The courage to think for oneself, to escape from self-imposed immaturity. In a world in which culture is built to make people empty and endlessly suggestible, an alternative would be an idea of experience that actually contributes to our basic sense of having an inside that we can carry with us from moment to moment. In the same way that Nabokov once said he would never go back to Russia because all of the Russia that I need is always with me, literature, language, and my own Russian childhood. Today, this entire model has been reversed. These activities are now considered the purview of snobs and elitists. You are made to feel guilty by engaging in them. Far from being associated with radical subjectivity, these pursuits are now considered by many on the so-called left as reactionary, racist, elitist in themselves. The culture that was originally considered reactionary, that of commodified culture and the conventionalism it inscribed in people, is now the exclusive realm of freedom. No one seems to notice how nicely this ideological transformation has worked out for those in power and the firms that reduce all experience to commerce. Cultural experience is no longer a personal journey of transformation, but an endless stream of the ever same that neither helps us develop nor inculcates in us a sense of discernment, a potential for both unprejudiced dissatisfaction and the search for a difficult pleasure. Contemporary culture tries to ensure that we do not develop or change. One of the most conspicuous features not only of dosing culture, but of contemporary culture as a whole, is the sense that it is suffused in both form and content in overt and subtle ways with infantilizing or adolescent qualities. The ways it is produced and circulated are determined by the end goal of making us dependent. Little babies in need of the ding of a new notification, a tweet, a message, and all the other substitutes for the long-lost gaze from our mother. Its goal is to breed identification, attachment and addiction, not a new sense of reality. It tells us nothing of substance about history, life, human nature or psychology, and traffics almost strictly in cliches and memes. It is positivist, a symptom of atrophied imagination. These infantilizing qualities have their origin in economic imperatives. The most important factor is our integration into a community of consumers. Early tastes are important because they will determine our consumption patterns later on. Harold Bloom argued that we ultimately read in order to strengthen the self and to learn its authentic interests. All reading, even at the highest levels, will be colored by the desire to recapture the pleasures we experienced in youth. We read to understand ourselves more deeply, to understand the world, to experience a sense of other people in human history. We read as a cure for alienation. Today we are lucky if we can ever escape the aesthetic comportment of our early years. Our childhood becomes a trap, precisely because childhood itself is so intensely commodified today. If culture as sublimation builds our ego up, the new style works to destroy whatever ego remains. Because we are a target audience, the market dictates that we can never really mature. Our best hope is that someday we manage to morph into a new demographic. We are given the freedom to move from 20-somethings who play video games and watch superhero movies to 30-somethings who play video games and watch classic sitcoms. Perpetually underdeveloped, reading falls apart, and much of the self scatters with it. So, I know that's a lot to process, 
but um, I would suggest maybe sitting with that for a moment and if you feel like it, which I sometimes do with podcasts, but if I really want to understand something, I'll sort of listen to it again or go back and listen to parts of it again to sort of take it in. But my my initial thought is that every time I read this article and I this essay and I've read it, God, it's it's a tw- it's a twenty minute read, so it's it's quite substantial. It's not like just sort of you know reading the latest news update. Um, I take something new from it, and you know thing things that stand out to me, uh, different things stand out to me every time. Uh, and like I don't I don't want to sort of prescribe too much here. Like I I just think this is a really important way of looking at things as they are and I agree with it like wholeheartedly but I don't sort of want to push on to you to tell you exactly what you should feel about it or what you should take from it but I think whether you listen to the episode once or a few times or if you actually go and read the article you know the link in the episode notes I think that there's there's a lot to be gleaned from it and like, I just, I just think like, I, I'm thinking about like myself, like there's a, there's a section in here where it talks about the, the genre of the buildings Roman, like where it implies the idea of your youth where an early encounters with certain works of art are so powerful that they contribute to a, your identity and shape the trajectory of your life. And I instantly am, you know, evoking in my mind memories of me reading books as a child, like rereading the Harry Potter series over and over, which as books go for young people, like they are quite profound, I guess. Like, I mean, I don't have the same relation to them, relationship to them now as I did as a child, but like there is a lot going on. There is a lot to learn from it about the human experience. There is a lot of imagination at play. Um, but, but even more importantly for me, it was discovering music at the age of 14 when I was just this incredibly sort of sad, quiet, uh, troubled, you know, young teen who didn't really have anything in his life. Like I didn't really feel like I had a grasp of anything in my life that made me felt like understood or even sort of like human. I just felt like adrift even at that age. And, and when I discovered music, when my friend showed me the music of Metallica one night, um, when I was staying over his house, I, I just couldn't get enough of it. It just aw- awakened something in me. And from there was like this five to six year journey of just like discovering heavy metal music and and getting into even more heavy stuff and then finding indie music and hip hop. And like, this is the contemporary music of the time, um, you know, 10 years ago, but, but also looking back at songs from, from way back when, and, and that still sort of continues to happen for me, but I know that the relationship is different now because I'm a bit more grown up, but th- those things were integral to me. They, they shaped the way I like experience the world, the way I express myself, the way I understand things, at least on some core level. And then I go and think about, well, like what do people like the f- 13 and 14 year olds have now? They just have this, like, like Chris Crawford says in the article, this endless stream of like smooth, uh, you know, uh, smooth textureless content that goes down endless TikToks, a- endless Instagram posts and YouTube videos that are comp- like, they, they're not challenging you. They're not, um, they're, they're not sort of speaking to something deeper. They're not really saying anything. And it's like, it's not that I just want to say my takeaway from this 
article is that, you know, social media and YouTube are completely vapid and devoid of any content. Like there are things there to be gleaned, but it's not the same. It's, it's not as, um, it's just not going to have the same impact on you. And I think, you know, someone at my age, 26 years old, or, uh, you know, even older or, or younger or whatever it is, like by, by eschewing, you know, interacting with more meaningful art. And I've talked about this before, whatever it is for you, whether it's theater, whether it's music, whether it's film, whatever it is for you that you're interacting with, something that says something about the human condition, the the human soul, like that makes you feel empathy for other people and other situations to understand yourself. Like that doesn't come from (laughs) YouTube or, 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 podcasts. Well, it's a tough one because I, I have had that experience with like some podcasts, but it was like over a case of years. It wasn't, and I think anything's going to be like that, but it was like, I realize I'm rambling a bit here because it's just such a, to me, it's just such a, like almost like a shocking thing to kind of like put it into those words and like realize it and like feel like the the full emotional range of like where we're at with things, but it it makes me really disappointed. It makes me really upset, but you can see that there's a reason for this. And the reason is a purely economic one. And I think that if you just, I think that once you know this, as I know now, like once I sort of feel this deep within myself and realize this, I can't just sit on YouTube all the time and watch all these videos. Like I just feel the absolute, devoid like the 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 lack of any spiritual content you know and like i get it like as freud says like we have diversion and we have sublimation and they have their their roles in life but i think like all we're doing is is experiencing diversion that's all the social media is that's all that's all these youtube videos are that's all tiktok and instagram is it's it's, it's destroying us. Like, uh, it, there's no other way to say it, but like, as like human beings, it is turning us into aliens. It is turning us into monsters. We don't have like the same empathy, you know, coming back to the, how are you thing? Like that is becoming more prevalent within people that I know, like my relationships are becoming increasingly professionalized because people just think of themselves not as a human being in a community of other people, but as like a, a single being within a marketplace. And that's obviously the world we live in. That's what capitalism creates. That's the conditions that it creates. But I, I just reject it. And I'm not saying that it's easy. It's challenging. Like it is challenging because you're going against the grain. You are, you are literally the, the dominant system in front of you that's there, that is frictionless, that is so easy. It is so easy to go on social media. It is so easy to go on YouTube. It is right there to just, to give yourself over to this, to, to, to be subsumed by this technology, this, which is in my opinion, like a, a wholly negative thing. Like there is almost nothing valuable there anymore. Like I can see a value in the internet and I can see its value as a, as a research tool, as a way of communicating and understanding, but how much communicating are we really doing now? You know, in my lifetime, it's been probably 12 to 15 years since the internet was really a part of my life. But I think what's, what's allowing me to articulate these things is that I can remember a time when I didn't have the internet. I can remember 
a childhood where I would go out into the world and do things and I would be bored and I would get creative and I would come up with ideas. I can remember that. But the feeling now of like never being bored because you're always shoving something in your face, it alienates you from yourself, from your inner self. Like what Chris Crawford says, like it alienates you from the ability to understand yourself and to, to, to spend your time doing something worthwhile. I mean, just think about what he said and ask yourself, like how, how much do you remember of like the last five years? Like how, how many like concrete memories do you have? And I would guarantee the standout ones are not times when you were consuming something. If there are any, if you can't remember any, if you feel like you don't have any meaningful memories, it's probably because your brain has been just turned into this like soup bowl with a hole in the bottom. The soup gets poured in every single day, but it slowly trickles out the bottom. You're never taking anything in. You're never like learning something. You're never experiencing anything. And and I would hope you don't take this as like a call out again. Like I never want to feel like I'm being judgmental. I'm merely just exploring my own feelings about the subject and understanding what I've been going through and then trying to outline it for other people so that maybe you can have a more healthy and constructive relationship with things like the internet, things like social media. I mean, I just, I know myself a lot better now after spending time off these things. And I know the only way for me is just to not be on it at all. And it, it it's hard. Like I said, it's hard because you do get bored, because you do feel that sense of addiction. You do still look at your phone a lot. You do try and fill the void with the, with YouTube or, or whatever novel information that's on the internet. But over time, it gets easier. And over time, the more you interact with some more meaningful artworks. And again, like I, I don't want to say that like the, the solution is don't consume this thing, consume this thing instead, because that's a bit of a trap as well. But your consumption needs to be a lot more intentional, a lot more thoughtful. Like it, it's, it's the same thing as your diet. Like I guess where we're at in the world is that it's like if you, if you were trying to become healthier and like lose weight, but all you ate was fast food and you didn't exercise at all, I'm sure you know that you're not going to achieve your goals of losing weight and becoming healthier if you don't change those things. And that's what social media and YouTube is. It's all dr- junk. It's all trash. It's just corroding your mind and like your social socialization ability, like destroying any chance of having any empathy for others or giving yourself the, the fertile ground to pursue your art or, or whatever it is that you feel like you want to do. You know, like I am seeing a growth within myself and I, I want to speak about it candidly because it's just felt like so oppressive these last... God, these last like five to six years, just like the way the internet and this this juggernaut of online media culture has just consumed me and just turned me into that alien, that that monster, that soulless thing. And I see it in other people and it, it's heartbreaking, but it also makes it really challenging for me to engage with people because they don't see it. And I'm doing my best now to try and point these things out. Not, not that I think I'm some kind of crusader or some kind of advocate or anything like that. Not that I think it's necessarily my place, but it's like what, what was said in the article as well is like, we, we don't have an imagination anymore. We don't have the ability to imagine anything better. We just think this is as good as it's going to get. I feel like that too. 
I mean, Mark Fisher, he's, a, he's an author who sadly took his own life, but he, he talked about this um, in his book, Capitalist Realism, where he said, like, it's easier for people to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine something changing for the better. And that's where we're at. And personally, I just feel like I need to demand better through my actions. And in my personal relationships, I'm starting to point these out, these things out to people, not again, not as a a personal attack, not as a way to say like, Hey, why are you like this? Because I was the same. We are all turning into the same, like being the same, the same soulless being. Um, but it's not going to get better unless we do something. And for me, logging off, logging the fuck off the internet a lot more and distancing myself from these this, this consumption has allowed me to have that clarity and allowed me to start to sketch some ideas of what like a, a better future could look like. And it's, it's, it's not like this grand, like massive political action. It's a personal action towards yourself, like how you treat yourself and, and how you treat those around you. Like you start there and then, and, and you start to realize like, okay, I, uh, this is what I really want. And for me, and, 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 you know, the overarching premise of this project, the mirror is that I, I feel like artistic expression is the way that I can best explain myself. I mean, I know I can do a pretty good job on this podcast, but I also think that through imagery, through, through the language of cinema, which is very interesting to me, or maybe it takes another form, maybe it's painting, maybe it's sculptural, that I am able to express myself in a way that I don't necessarily know how to do with words or writing. Like it can be very challenging, even though I'm, you know, investing a lot of time in doing those things. And, and I know that, and I know that now, like what I want to do is create art and to, and to make films. And that's how I am changing my relationship with myself because I wasn't doing that before. I had lost that because I like, not just sort of, you know, getting involved in the rat race and, and trying to run a successful business or something like that. Like that was part of it, but it's just like the, the way, the way we've been turned into these creatures of consumption, uh, is, is, yeah, it's just destroying ourselves. I think I don't have a better way to say it. Like I said, sometimes I, I'm good at communicating and other times not as good, but I think Chris Crawford really outlines it better than I could. And yeah, I, I, I will, uh, I'm planning on reading the next, the, the, the part two of the essay in the next episode. And after that, I, I sort of have a, I guess like a further expansion on this topic that I've been writing. I've sort of written maybe five or six pages on it already. Um, but I, I might leave that till later because I'm still trying to like articulate the thoughts a bit better and I'm not quite sure how to get that. And I have some other topics I'd like to speak about, but yeah, I'm just, just like thinking about like, like I know that it can be really hard to make these kind of changes, but I I just think like you really just need to ask yourself and, and be honest with yourself about like, why do you continue to do these things? Like, why are you always watching YouTube videos or why are you always scrolling through Instagram? Like, does it make you feel good at all? Like, cause I know that myself, I got nothing from it. Like the pleasure I got from it was like, yeah, there, there is a pleasure in it, but that doesn't make you necessarily happy. That's not the same thing as like, that's that sense of like sublimation and change and understanding within yourself that, that Freud talks about. 
ask yourself that and ask whether you really need to be on these platforms because I know that if these things disappeared tomorrow, I know we can't imagine a future without them. We think, how could we possibly not have it? But we would figure it out and we would go out into the world and we would speak to each other again and we would figure out how to have relationships in the ways that we don't really do as much anymore. And I'm sure this probably doesn't apply to everyone, but I think most people that I know are speaking about something like this, even if they don't really understand it. And I, and I know, I know how hard it can be, but like you, I feel like a good, a good step forward is to just maybe try, spend a few days without it or try a week, try a month, like see what you can do. And I'm sure you'd be very surprised at what you can, you can make, how much you can make do without it. And don't just replace it with something else. Don't just instantly go, all right, I'm getting rid of Facebook, but I'm signing up for Reddit. Like that's not, that's not good either. Um, The internet should just be a, a, you know, a resource. It should be a way for discovering great work and, and maybe like a launching off point for things or, you know, looking up the weather, like these things that it is great at doing that don't, you know, necessarily corrode our social relationships and also steal our information and sell it to people so that they can advertise towards us. I mean, I actually realized a month ago, I was like, it just hit me. I was like, I haven't seen an advertisement in weeks because I don't watch television. I wasn't watching YouTube at the time. I am not on any social media. I don't read the newspaper or I barely read magazines. And if I do, they're like, they don't have advertisements in them. And it just hit me. I was like, I haven't seen an advertisement in ages. And it was the most amazing thing. But that absence made me realize just how much I was being advertised to, whether it was uh, an actual like sponsored promotional thing on the internet that's like, hey, buy our product or whether it was, um, you know, someone spruiking their their thing. And it feel honestly, it feels good. <laughs> That's all I can say. It feels good to not um, to be ex- to not be experiencing this shit all the time. But I mean, I, I and I know this is probably a very inelegant ending to the episode. But it to me, it doesn't matter because I just need to express these things. And if you want to talk more about it, I like I said at the beginning of the episode, I highly. Um, I, I welcome you to get in touch via the contact form on my website. And I'm very happy to speak with people directly. Like if you want to, um, you know, if you want to have a phone call about it or whatever, Zoom or something else disgusting, or if you live in the neighborhood and we can and chat in person, like I'm always down for it. I, and again, I'm trying to point position myself as like the expert, but just more like someone who is thinking about these things. And if you want to talk more about it, I've got plenty of thoughts that I can share with you. Um, and I wanted to leave today with just one little extra thing that I thought of as I was sort of preparing for this. I actually wrote this for another episode, but I, I just want to share it now while I have it in case I change my mind and switch, switch them out. But I, I know that I talk a lot about seeking out you know, more intentional art experiences and to interact with your field of art or different fields of art in a new way. And I know it can be a really hard place to start because, I mean, if you want to talk about the subjectivity of art, like everyone has different quote unquote preferences or might appreciate different things, but that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about um, giving yourself over to the experience anyway. And maybe you do hate it, but at least you learned something. And at least then 
when you turn around and go to create your own artwork or to to produce something yourself that you will actually have some like better reference points because I think we can say like objectively films that are made and screened in cinemas are almost 99% of the time going to be better types of art than the videos you watch on YouTube which just feature one person in their bedroom talking to a camera with some static imagery over the top of it. Just in terms of like, well, in terms of everything, in terms of the production level, in terms of the vision for it, in terms of like the material factors that go into creating a film and, and the people involved in it, it's just going to be an objectively more um, profound and in-depth experience. So I came up with a list of 10 films that I'm going to include in the episode notes and um, I'll do my best to share with you where you can watch them. But I feel like I was coming up with this and, and I was just like, you know what, I should just put out a list of 10 films. It's not a completely, you know, academic list. It's not like these are the 10 greatest films ever. But I think this is for me like a really great starting point for exploring some different eras and genres of films and, you know, if you're wanting to explore film and you're not sure where to go, this is where I would start. And from there, I think you will be in the, in the membrane of cinema, in the membrane of like film and art creation where you will be, you will start to understand like a language for these things and you will go, okay, I really liked this. or this was really interesting. What more is out there? And the more you search films like this, the more you will find more interesting things as well. And one thing that I found really fascinating about this, I was like, I want to, I want to give people some interesting experiences. I don't want them to be super challenging, but at least, you know, challenging enough that I feel like you get something worthwhile from it. And I came up with the first five off the top of my head. And then I looked at the list of my, looked at my list of films that I've been watching and keeping over the last couple of years. And all the ones I came with came up with off the top of my head were not in English. And I thought that was really fascinating because that meant to me that the films and, and work that I could evoke, uh, invoke that I, that I thought of that had resonated with me so deeply that they just came out of my subconscious when I went into my subconscious and went, okay, what films are good? They were not in English. And they that that to me is like a start of like something meaningful because I know that can be a huge barrier for people. So eight of these films are not in English. Uh, two of them are because I figured I should put some Hollywood cinema in there. But um, yeah, the list, the list is in the show notes, but I'll just quickly, um, I'll just quickly run through them now. So in any order you can watch them and I think you'll get a lot from it. Like you will, you will learn so much about what is possible with cinema and the different ways you can, uh, explore and, and different ways you can produce things and really get a, an, a a really rich understanding of like what what is capable if you've only grown up watching Netflix video uh, TV shows or just YouTube videos. But so we've got Stalker by Andrei Tarkovsky, which is a Russian art house film, which is just phenomenal. Uh, Uncian Andalou by Louis Bunuel, which is a surrealist silent film from the 1920s. It's French. Um, House or Hausu by Nobuhiko Obayashi, which is a Japanese film from the 70s. It's like a new wave cinema. It's just so quirky and just so 
interesting in the way that it uh, deconstructs the film genre and the, the the beauty of it and like the handcrafted nature of it. I mean, to me, that's probably my favorite one on this list, but they're all pretty amazing. Uh, we've got Chunking Express by Wong Kar Wai, which is quite a like romantic film from, uh, he's based in Hong Kong and he made a lot of amazing sort of neon lit, romantic, sad films in Hong Kong in the 90s. So yeah, Chunking Express. Um, Bacharel, I spoke about, I, I won't be able to pronounce the directors, but they're Brazilian. It's a contemporary film and it's quite a political film. So I think that's a an interesting um, an, an interesting uh, category to explore. Uh, the film Perfect Blue by Satoshi Kon is a is a Japanese anime film from the 90s. Um, incredibly beautiful and sad and dark and violent and honestly really fits in with this episode because it basically centers around a character who's having a deep spiritual identity crisis. And I think we're all having a deep spiritual identity crisis, aren't we? So... Yeah, that's worth watching. Uh, La Jete by Chris Marquier, which is from the 1960s, I believe. And it is a sci-fi film in which almost every single frame in the film is actually a photograph. So there is barely any actual motion picture. There is just photographs, sound effects and music and a voiceover. And it is it is pretty powerful and it is and a really, really amazing example of what you can do with such like so little, um, like if you only had a stills camera, if you just had one camera and one roll of film, you could make a movie out of it. And it's like 25 minutes long or something like that. Uh, I included this one cause I for- I'd forgotten about it, but I watched it on, a, on an airplane. It's called Walt with Bashir. It's a documentary that is completely animated because the the things that it talks about it talks about um the some like pretty dark stuff in the history like more recent history of Israel and their um wars with the countries around them in Lebanon and like speaks about things like genocide and and guilt and trauma and memory and the entire thing is like an animated recreation so the filmmaker basically interviewed people that he was serving in the Israeli army with about their experiences and pieced together what happened that he'd kind of forgotten because of the trauma of it and then animated into this like beautiful, poignant, really, really dark and sad film. Yeah, Waltz with Bashir. Um, one one film that, the ninth film on the list, one, it, it really hit me deeply because it made me understand my own sort of mental mental health experience like my own struggles that I have and how I sort of saw myself as a person in the world and it, it just really spoke to me and that's a punch drunk love by Paul Thomas Anderson he uh he he's been directing films since the 90s in and around like the San San Francisco area and this is like a another like uncut gems it's a serious role for Adam Sandler, like he's the main actor, but it's just shot so beautifully. And it's such like a, a, a musical rhythmic, like understanding of like, uh, just like deep suffering and like the, the beauty, um, the beauty of people amidst like their, their suffering and alienation. Um, 
yeah, it really, it really stayed with me. And lastly, just because I think you've got to, you've got to engage with him, but Blue Velvet by David Lynch, which is my sort of more, I guess, slightly more traditional Hollywood film. But in saying that it's quite surreal, it was made in the eighties. It's, uh, it's so lynchy. It's like so, so, so lynchian as they would say, it's, it's, it's like being in a dream, but it's not, you can't really grasp what's real and what's not. And, um, I can't really say anything else more about it. And I don't think David Lynch would want me to either. Just watch the film, watch all of those. Like I said, the list is in the show notes as well as the link to Chris Crawford's article. And I guess I just want to thank everybody for, for listening, for supporting this project. You know, if you, if you don't know already, if you haven't seen them already, you can watch, um, you can watch the visualizers for the episodes on YouTube. Like I don't have actual video footage of me recording them because I love to just have this as an audio only experience. I think that's like the way that I prefer to hear and understand things in the world. Um, but if you do want to look at something while, while listening, um, there's a link to the YouTube channel in the show notes as well. And you can watch the, uh, yeah, the, the, the little visualizers that I created for, for this podcast, which is some experiments with some, some slow cinema and sort of understanding the environment around me at one of my favorite times of the year. So with all that in mind, and I know that was probably a lot, so, you know, let me know what you, what you think of all that and let me know how, how it's sort of sitting with you. And if you want to talk about these things further, like I said, absolutely get in touch. I would love to speak with you about this or any other topic for that matter. And, uh, I'm going to leave you, leave you there for this week and I hope you all have a great week, great weekend. Um, whenever you're listening to this, wherever you are listening to it, go and watch some great films or, you know, if if you're an artist and, and you are starting to explore your art form more in depth now beyond just the realms of, of social media and, and algorithm based content like YouTube, and you have some recommendations of films or, uh, theater performances or paintings or exhibitions that you saw or places to start literature, whatever it may be, feel free to get in touch and maybe they might, uh, end up somewhere in, in an episode or in, in the show notes or something like that. I can share them with the people as well. I can only really speak about cinema because that's my, my strong point, but I mean, I'm interested in other things too. So I'm interested in, if you have a recommendation, I mean, I'd rather read something that you recommend to me than, than what uh, YouTube recommends. So yeah, stay well everyone. And I will chat to you again very soon. Take care of yourselves and as always log off. (laughs) All right. Peace. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Mirror. The Mirror seeks to provoke questions around the way we create and experience art, and it's my sincere hope that in some way it helps you in your own creative practice, and perhaps your life beyond. If this project reaches you in some way, helps you reflect or reframe, or indeed provokes any kind of feelings within you, I'd love to hear from you about it via the contact form on my website. I really appreciate your engagement with The Mirror, 
You can support me and the work that I do by becoming a sustaining member for as little as $40 a year by signing up at justinreed.com.au slash support. You will help me continue to create exceptional work, feel great about directly funding compelling art, and you'll also receive a bunch of great benefits, including access to exclusive films, artworks, and behind-the-scenes material on my membership platform that you can't experience anywhere else, discounts on my online store, and higher-tier subscribers even get free access to all of my premium films before anyone else. So become a sustaining member and sign up at justinreed.com.au support. You can also support the show by subscribing to my YouTube channel and listening to full episodes of The Mirror there, complete with meditative, original visuals created just for this project. Our fantastic music is written, produced, and performed by Annalisa Vetrunio, with drums contributed by Giacomo Greco. All of these details and links are included in the episode description. And until next time, I hope you're out there creating great work on your terms. I'm Justin Reed, and you have been listening to The Mirror.